The president's asking the refineries to increase capacity. Are we using more gas today than we were a year ago? Are we driving more? No. Really? We're driving more, but our use of gasoline products is down about 8% year over year. We're using less gasoline today than we were a year ago. And a year ago, we were using less gasoline than two years before that. And in 2020, we used a whole bunch less. Once more unto the breach, dear friends. Else fill the wall up with our English dead. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and welcome to another exciting episode of The Personal Wealth Coach, starring Jake and Jeff McClure. All right, now that we've got that out of the way, we can go home. Yeah, we're done now. We have said our names, and wait, nope, we have to disclose before we go home. First disclosure is that this program is called the Personal Wealth Coach. Got it. Very okay, nice. I got yeah. that one down. I wrote that down. Second one is that there are two bald men with beards having a conversation on the air. Uh, if that does not sit well with you, you may change the channel. Channel? Or, yeah. yeah. Unless it's a podcast and then you have to just change the podcast. Yes. Don't touch that dial. Second thing, or third thing after baldness and personal wealth coach is that the personal wealth coach is not just the name of a podcast and a radio program. It is also the name of an sec registered investment advisory firm. And that's not coincidental. The people that are talking to you are the principals at that firm. Just as a side note, just because the firm is registered with the sec doesn't mean that the sec has any kind of favorability preference or approval in any form, fashion or inference in any particular way that the government approves of us period. Well, dot, 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 because we could continue that disclosure. The government's not Mm -hmm. good at approving of things. Um, And we've got lots to say on that subject later. Um, Okay. So, and also registered as an SEC investment advisor, that means gives fiduciary investment advice to people, which we can't do on the air because we don't know you all. And unless there's only one of you listening and we know you in that case, I'm sorry, we didn't mean to tell you that we didn't know you. But uh, it would still violate privacy for yeah. us to give you that advice where everybody else could hear. Because somebody else sneakily could turn on their radio right in the middle of the advice that we're broadcasting. So please consider what you're hearing today as educational material, um, kind of good information to let you know what's happening in the world and how to make decisions instead of what decision to make. There. I made that sufficiently non-legalese, I think, maybe. I'll take your word for it. Um, Would you like to give a really legalese disclosure now? The information we present on this educational radio and internet broadcast has been obtained from sources we deem to be reliable. However, we make no warranty or guarantee as to the accuracy or completeness of said information. And I deem that those warranties or guarantees that we don't give would be inaccurate if we had. (laughs) I don't know. You're getting too complex for me. Yeah. My brain on Saturday morning can't handle that. Right. Okay. And the last, but not least, is that this is not a paid commercial program. We don't pay for this program, and they don't pay us to do it. So it's some kind of a weird volunteer thing that we've been doing for 20, 
five years now on the air. So it's not paid commercial program. However, we do advertise on the station there. Uh, we actually get a discount on our advertising. We do. Yeah, I, I, we have our prices have not changed on what we pay for advertising per minute in like ten years. Don't tell them that. Right. So they actually are giving us a, that could amount to being paid if you think about it from no, that perspective. No, I, I think it's it's the laws of supply and demand. I think advertising in general has declined in AM radio. During that same so, period. And so they're really happy to still have us. Oh, that could be. Uh, we are regular uh, as clockwork. The, the thing that we advertise for on the station, by the way, isn't us. It's for the radio program. So they may give yeah. us a discount on that as well. We we do use the name of our firm, which happens to be the name of the radio yeah. program. So yeah. there's, there's, there's significant advantages. Senator, there. there is a quid pro quo. I mean, people hear us, and if they don't immediately change the channel based on our humor and baldness, um, people that tend to listen to us for a while might decide to use our services to give them advice on how to invest stuff if they've got high net worth. So it's not like we don't get anything for talking about this stuff, but that's it's not our mo major motivation. We are semi-motivated by that. I mean, it's nice to get new clients, but it's not something that we're actively looking for right now. We're probably getting a little overkill on the disclosures. Well, I mean, what we should just spend the whole hour on disclosures and see if we really have enough people that care about who we are as people to not change the channel. No, channel? No, no, no. Or podcast. It could be. Oh. oh, don't touch that dial. Yeah. Where there's a radio channel, it has to be dredged every once in a while to make sure that it's deep enough. All right. So what happened in the market this week? Uh, the market behaved oddly this week. Uh, the S&P 500 stock index, the one we generally report on, because while it's an imperfect index and an imperfect indicator of the market, it's the one that's reasonably, the most accurate, reasonably popular one. The Dow Jones and 30 industrials, which is also, which is even more popular, is only 30 stocks and sometimes not a particularly in good indication of what's going on in the market. The um, S&P 500 into the week at 3911.74, for those of you who follow such things, that's up 6.45% for the week. Now, that's the weird thing about it. Did, did anybody tell the market that this is 2022? That's weird. I, we have a we have an up in the market in 2022. I think there must have been a memo that went to the wrong place. Maybe the mail took a long time to arrive and it had a 2021 date on it. And so the market well, said, all right, this week we're up. There's obviously a problem. Uh, last week, we had a big dip in the market because of the Federal Reserve saying, hey, we're going to raise interest rates 0.75%. But it didn't occur on the day they said it. No. It occurred the next day, right. which means there is a lag there somewhere. Maybe the lag is not the lag is not in Asia because it was already tomorrow in Asia. I, it, and they, was and, it going and, out by mail? I don't know. I Something don't, happened. I know that the just-in-time no, no, delivery no. method is broken right now, but it would think it, that the news from the Federal Reserve would happen if, to the market on the same day. It doesn't. If it went out by the United States Postal Service, it would have never happened. Yeah, never would have arrived. That's what you're it, saying. Or would have arrived in the wrong place or several days later. Something right, like right, that. right. So that, that is a peculiarity. Uh, I do think a lot of the uh, investment decisions are made after the market closes. So people were mulling it around all night in the wherever you're people putting, mull around you're, such things. You're applying logic to this. It's just much better if we act like we don't understand what's going on. 
Ah, anyway. So, but for the week, we were, it was up 6.45%. Now, that's kind of significant. Um, why is that significant? Because, the, the, for instance, the three-year average return, total return, or three-year average ap- appreciation, let's put it like this, yeah. of the S&P 500 stock index is 10.32% a year. That's the average. It was up 6.45% in a single day. That is unusually volatile, and we have high variance or high volatility. Um, it's down 17.93% this year, which, by the way, does not mark the end of the bear market. The collective wisdom of the pundits on Wall Street is that when the market rises 20% from its bottom, wherever that bottom is, in other words, when the market has a collective 20% rise from a recent bottom, that's the end of the bear market. Why that particular definition, I don't know, but it's the one that's reported routinely in the Wall Street Journal. So, but it hasn't done that. It's only up. It, it, the lowest point it hit See, was actually the day before yesterday. Do you know what the dictionary says? What? A market in which share prices are rising, encouraging buying. Um, the end of the bear market? No. A bull market is a market right. in which share prices are rising, encouraging buying. That's the whole definition. Yeah. So we could say right. we're in a bull market now. Uh, but uh, Investopedia says a commonly accepted definition of a bear market is when stock prices rise by 20% after two declines of 20% each. Wait a minute. A commonly, read that again. You said definition of a bear market is when prices rise 20%. No, a a definition of a bull market. Oh, you said bear market the first time. One of those, one of those, the bull market, a commonly accepted definition of a bull market is when stock prices Rise by 20% after two declines of 20% each. I've never what? heard that one. That's I've what they say on Investopedia. So what we consider the common definition of a bull market is a rise of 20% from the lowest that the market was in the bear market that preceded it. So Yeah, that makes sense. So what else happened in the market? It's, we're, it, we're still in a bear market. We're not well, as I said, the... Market is still down 17.93% from the beginning of the year. It's still down 8.62% from this time last year. So we're still in a bear market. Uh, Most of the commentators who have been reasonably accurate in the past, in my experience, have suggested this is what's called a bear market rally. Uh, They happen. They definitely happen during a bear market. And why? Well, Historically, almost without exception, and I looked for an exception and couldn't find one, but I've read that there are exceptions. A bear market ends with something called capitulation. Right. And a capitulation is really easy to see. The last sellers sell, and the market suddenly plunges, and there is a collective wisdom that emerges in the uh, media that the life as we know it is coming to an end and the market will probably go to zero. I used to have, when I was a broker, when I was a stockbroker, I used to have a uh, brokerage customer who lived in Houston who literally was a little old lady who wore tennis shoes. And she would always mark the bottom of corrections in bear markets. She was extremely reliable because she would always call and want to sell everything. And when she, the day she called and wanted to sell everything was always the absolute bottom in the market. I miss her tremendously. She's no longer with us, but I miss her tremendously. We we had a name for that, by the way. It was the old lady in tennis shoes indicator. 
And mm-hmm. and when little she called up, yeah, little when she called up and she said, "I need to buy with every available dollar that you have in 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 the account," we would go, "Uh oh, that's the end of in, the bull." In the bull market, yeah. we're about to Actually, have a, a dip. And then uh, when she called up and said, "Sell everything I have immediately," that was we would say, "All right, well, we're about to begin the upward rise," and it was so accurate. Actually, there was another lady who was very consistent. Uh, indicator of the top of of bull market who's who's always who's also no longer with us noted lady she was in her 80s at the time she called she would call and want to buy some exotic stock often a foreign stock that she had heard about her in her quilting guild and when the ladies in the quilting guild start talking about buying stocks the last buyers in a bull market either have just bought or are about to buy, and that's the end of the bull market. By the way, that's how when bear markets and bull markets end. When the last people who are going to sell, sell, that's the end of the bear market. When the last people who are going to buy, buy, that's the end of the bull market. Why? Well, if everybody who's going to buy has already bought, there's nobody left to buy, and there's probably somebody who's willing to sell. And since all the buyers have already bought, there's nobody to catch the price when it starts down. The other side of it is when the last people who want to sell, sell, that's it. From there on, there's only buyers and the market goes up. And right. once it's and there is such a thing as momentum, it's psychological momentum where people make up their mind. Now, does that mean that this bull market that this is definitely not the end of the bear market? No. One of the most fascinating things if you want to study bear markets, and I have, is they're all different. They have many of the major, major bear markets have certain similarities. But if you look at them carefully and you analyze the news media reports that were going on during the time and what people were writing that they were saying at that time, they're all different. So we don't know. And that's the point. That's why market timing, by the way, doesn't work. If there was a surefire way of spotting the bottom on a bear market, then market timing would work perfectly. However, study after study has shown that if sets of investors, sets of investor behaviors Market timers consistently have the worst long-term return, the very worst long-term return. Um, And people who buy and hold generally have the best long-term return. Uh, And that's reality. It doesn't seem intuitive, which is probably why it works. Anyway, that was the the S&P 500. The the CRSP mid-cap value index, which we also follow, is up 4.87% for the week to 2279.04. It's down 12.25% this year, uh, down about 7% from this time last year. Well, that's it. The yield on the U.S. 10-year Treasury also did something, and it's worth talking about. The Treasury note yield, which is an indication of what the treasury, the bond market collectively, the people who trade in the bond market think interest rates are going to be doing in the future, uh, rose to about 3.3% midweek. Now, let me put that in context. Uh, 18 months ago, it was less than 1%. It's now 3.3%. That's a huge rise. But then in the rest of the week, it slid downward and closed the week at 3.135%. The interest rates in the latter half of the week, as the market was going up, interest rates came down. And there's really very good reasons for that. Um, We can talk about that at some length. The treasury curve is still positive. For those who don't know what the treasury curve is or what it means, the treasury curve is, we look at the interest yield on treasury securities. And in a normal positive curve, 
shorter maturing treasury securities have lower 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 yields and longer maturing treasury securities have higher yields because if you're going to loan money to somebody for a longer period of time you expect to get a higher interest rate the, the risk goes up that something will happen a quick parallel that a lot of people experience in their lives is when they're buying a house or refinancing their house and they see that the interest rate on a 15-year note uh, on your house is lower than on a 30-year. Same true uh, when you're buying a car. You tend to have higher interest rates for a seven-year period than for a three-year mm -hmm. period. So that's healthy. Yeah. That's a good thing because they're putting their money at risk for seven years instead of three years. They want something paid back for it. When that reverses so that short-term interest rates are higher than long-term interest rates, it is a strong, strong, strong indicator we're about to have a recession. We're not experiencing that right now. We have a positive yield curve. That's a very right. positive sign for the economy. Okay. Yes. The price of, uh, so that's the 30-year bonds out there are 3.265% and the two-year note is at 3.063. Doesn't sound like there's a huge difference between them, but that's really a pretty normal spread. Now, West Texas Intermediate crude oil also did something pleasant. It moved from the it moved it dropped thirteen dollars over the last two weeks, and it's now at one hundred seven fifty three. Where did it drop that money? Because I can pick it up if if it doesn't need it anymore. In futures contracts. Ah, okay. I found it. I thought you was on the floor somewhere. Just dropping. So money. if you shorted if you shorted the futures contracts uh, from two weeks ago and you cashed in today, you could $13 pick up thirteen dollars a barrel. Nice. That's right. Nice. And that's really nice. Anyway, um, 107.53. Now, what, let's put that in, in context. Without the Russian invasion of Ukraine, West Texas Intermediate Crude was forecast to get to around $100 a barrel this summer. It is around $100 a barrel. But 107. those four, 107, admittedly, but they certainly didn't forecast Upper fours, well, the average cost of a gallon of regular gasoline across the United States right now is over $5. They didn't forecast that. Why is the price of gasoline so high and the price of diesel so high? Simply, Russia invaded Ukraine. Europe and the United States have basically embargoed Russian oil, which puts a significant shortage of oil in the world markets. That's, this is part of it. This isn't all of it. So we've pulled a lot of oil out of the markets. When there's a shortage of a commodity, and there's an increase in demand for that commodity, the price goes up, and that's why the price of gasoline and diesel is up. Now, there's a second cause of the shortage, which you may you may elaborate on at great length. During the pandemic, the price of oil and the price of gasoline got so low, the price of petroleum in general got so low, that investors were losing a lot of money, particularly in refineries. And so people stopped investing, and corporations stopped investing in refineries. They started shutting down refineries because it just wasn't profitable to keep them open. And, and this is a free enterprise society, so we certainly allow that. But the government doesn't say, you can't close that refinery. Um, several refineries were literally converted to biofuels that were previously producing petroleum-based fuels. So now there is a shortage of refinery capacity as well as a shortage of gasoline in Europe. Because there's such a shortage of gasoline in Europe and uh, some other places too, they are willing to pay a lot for gasoline. So gasoline that's made in the United States is not only staying in the United States, it's also being shipped around the world uh, because, of, again, the shortage of Russian petroleum. And Russia has a lot of 
uh, for refineries and they produced a lot of gasoline for Europe and Europe's not buying their gasoline anymore. So the price of gasoline goes up. That's kind of, that's a real quick and dirty yeah. um, picture of that. And we'll, we'll have more on that subject in just a minute. What did you have for the rest of the market? Um, that's all the market I was going to talk about today. Well, then it's less than a minute. It's now. The present is here. Wait a minute. It was here back before that too. But anyway. <clears throat> all right. I have a whole bunch to talk about on that subject. And people that have listened to the radio program for a while knows, know I follow the oil industry very closely. I look at number of rigs out there. I look at fracking. I... I understand how oil production works. I give advice on depletion calculations on individual oil wells, things like that. I'm not a geologist, but I am an economist. So I, I talk to geologists about this, though, because in order to make any kind of a profitability forecast or even just production forecast, you have to understand how this stuff works. So that's a bit of my background. I am absolutely not against the oil industry. I think that's kind of silly to say you're against any industry. Uh, it's an industry that we need right now. Even the president is saying to the refineries, please increase your capacity. So you mentioned this. During the pandemic, our demand for oil and gas dropped. Um, CNBC interviewed ExxonMobil's CEO this week, Darren Woods, and he said something that was fascinating. They're predicting that by the year 2040, that's 18 years from today, um, actually 17 and a half years, every new passenger car sold in the world will be electric. This is Exxon making that prediction. Are they likely knowing those numbers going to increase their capacity to refine gas, spend more money on that? Probably not. So, so that's one piece. In 2021, this is the numbers that we are now have, 9% of all passenger car sales were electric vehicles. That's globally. Only about 5% in the United States. The majority of that stuff was taking place in China. But 9% of all new car sales in 2021 were electric. Now, having said all that, the president's asking the refineries to increase capacity. Are we using more gas today than we were a year ago? Are we driving yes. more? No. Really? We're driving more, but our use of gasoline products is down about 8% year over year. We're using less gasoline today than we were a year ago. And a year ago, we were using less gasoline than two years before that. And in 2020, we used a whole bunch less. So if you look back through what we have is our use of gasoline is well below the average from 2017 to 2019. Well, why? Well, because 9% of all new cars were electric. How far below the demand are we today from what we were during the average of 2017 to 2019, we're about 8% less gas used. So those numbers kind of line up. We're selling more electric vehicles. We also lowered the capacity at the refineries by eight, 800,000 barrels a day during the pandemic. And we haven't brought that back online, and it's unlikely that we will. Because the predictions for 2022 and the actual sales for 2022 are putting the United States 
purchases of electric vehicles at much higher than 5%, like it was last year. It's catching up to what was, is going on elsewhere in the world. New, new cars, people look at the price. If you're going to pay $5 a gallon at the pump, People are looking at the, at the prices on electric vehicles, which are rising, but not as fast as other vehicles are rising in price, which is weird. So when you tie this all together and you f- add the fact that ethanol prices are way up, the reality is that our demand for gas is down. Our capacity and our production of gas is down. So there's less of it out there. And then Russia hit Ukraine. And I'm going to say something bad about Biden, and then I'm going to say something bad about Trump. How's that? Uh. Soon as Biden was elected, first month in office, one of the first things he did is suspend the leasing of federal land for oil and gas. Said, hey, not till we get a report on the long-term environmental impact of these things. So that sounds really bad, but then... Three months later, less than three months later, two and a half months later, they got the report and leasing began again. Okay, so he suspended leasing. That's not positive for oil and gas. Now I'm going to say the bad thing about Trump, which really isn't a bad thing about Trump. And that is that the last four years of the Obama administration had more oil and gas leases than the full four years of the Trump administration. Oil and gas production is not as high as it was, period. And it's ramping down, not up. Now, we, we're surging upward right now because prices are up. But if I were to give advice to a company that is producing oil and gas and they're about to buy equipment that they'll pay for over the next 30 years, well, the CEO of ExxonMobil said 100% of passenger cars in the world in 18 years are going to be electric. Are you planning on getting into a 30-year loan to increase your refinery capacity right now? Would you do that? (laughs) I would not. That's the issue right now is that technology isn't all there yet. This is like pre-supply chain fuddling because electric cars are not being produced at the efficiency they need to be and they're not enough of them yet. But the writing is on the wall. They're already, even at the lackluster performance of an electric car today it's already more cost effective if you're driving inside a city to have an electric vehicle than to have a gas vehicle in the same class so that's that's the writing on the wall it isn't say oil and gas is bad or this is all happening because of ecological reasons or any of that because the reality is it's happening for financial reasons. If it's less expensive to drive a car for the length of its car and it's better as far as quality, and that's the other part that comes out is that people are more proud of their vehicle six months later by far in all the surveys when their vehicle's an electric versus an, any other model. And, and that includes all the luxury models. So if you're more satisfied with your car, you like it more, you have less you have less maintenance issues um, and at long term costs less to own it. That's when people start doing it. And it's really nice to be able to congratulate themselves later and say, yes, I'm contributing to global green energy, blah, blah, blah. That's not what it's about. It's about it's cheaper. Uh, And that is when we're experiencing a pinch like this, where we're looking around and saying Russia is not able to sell 
It's gasoline to the market the same way it used to, either because people have decided not to buy it or because government sanctions have said don't buy it. By the way, that's not the case in oil and gas. Oil and gas is pretty well immune to that, except for insurance, federally subsidized insurance on oil tankers. That's the only part of sanctions that hits oil and gas. The banking of oil and gas is not sh- sanctioned. It's, it's all free market still. And yet people are buying less of it from Russia because they don't think it's a good idea to invade their neighbors. So those prices are coming to the pump. We're increasing our production. And the, we haven't hit the full capacity at the refineries yet. We're predicting it to be hit sometime in October. At which, yeah. point, at which point we won't have the ability to produce more gasoline than we're producing right now and that will be a the the maximum but if we're already using less gas and there's some great surveys out on that right now people are driving less now than they were a month ago they're carpooling more they are if they're going on vacation they're taking one car instead of two or three uh and that's cool a year ago at this point oil and gas was right around uh, per barrel oil was at in the mid 60s and it's 107 now. Well, that will cause you to drive less. <laughs> so those, that's what's going on out there. Yeah, there's, there's stuff politically that causes oil to be more expensive. But Trump didn't go out and say, I want to lease less land than Obama did. In fact, he was encouraging it. But the money's just not there. In fact, that one of those years was right in the middle of the pandemic when things got crushed. It isn't Trump's fault that oil and gas got crushed in the p- pandemic, but when they look at having to spend many billions of dollars financed over decades to pay for increased capacity, when they look decades ahead and say that's going to be way too much capacity in decades, we're going to have to figure out how to pay for this later. Um, and a lot of these publicly traded companies are. They've gotten to be pretty smart on how to stay profitable in bad times. So they're not going to spend a whole bunch of money right now. They're making the money that they need to make to tide them over when we stop buying their stuff. And there, I wrapped it up. And we're about out of time. This is the Personal Wealth Coach with Jeff and Jake McClure. Uh, If you would like to talk to us off the air, we actually give individually, uh, individually crafted and customized advice based on what people are trying to achieve. That's generally and portfolio management. And portfolio management. And that's generally for people with higher net worths, but we make exceptions occasionally. Um, and so you can contact us locally, voicemail available during the weekend, but actual real live people, no phone tree during the week at? 254-947-1111. You can reach that line tool free at 1-800-914-7526. That's 800 800- 914 plan. And I think it's important to note that we're an independent fiduciary firm. We don't work for a corporation. We only work for our clients. Right. Exactly. Uh, you can go to our webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com or tpwc.com. There's a contact form. You can use emails, Jeff or Jake at tpwc.com. There are uh, recordings of the radio program going back years, newsletters going back decades. Uh, and you can find us wherever podcasts are given. Um, Thank you very much for listening on a nice Saturday morning. And until next week, this has been The Personal Wealth Coach.